Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. And thank you guys. And again, thanks for the way that you join in there. Welcome to those of you sitting in the room. Welcome to those of you joining online. We can't see you, but we're glad you're here. Either way, you're with us. If you have your Bible, grab that. Join me. We're going to wrap up today in our study through the little Old Testament book of Ruth, right? Every week as we've done this, we've talked about this being kind of a human love story, but it points to a much, much bigger story, right? Every week we talk about this is the fact that God loves his people. He desires to be with us. He wants to redeem us. He wants to draw us into an eternal relationship with him. And so we're going to look at this last week today, and it starts out in kind of a, a neat place, but I want us to remember where we started out six weeks ago. Because there's a big contrast between what we see here at the start of this verse with how this book started. If you remember, we started six weeks ago with a bunch of funerals. We're going to open the service today with a wedding. There's, there's a big difference between those two kind of celebrations, right? Elimelech took his family to a place where he died. His sons died. They went to this wasteland, this place called Moab. We we're talking about funerals at the start. Today, we have a wedding. That's a different story. Book of Ruth starts out with weeping. It winds up with rejoicing. And that to me is just another nod for us to remember there's a big picture behind this. It's more than what we see on the surface. We need to think about how we fit in this story. Because if we're here as God's people, if we're thinking about our own relationship with God, kind of from the aerial view, the reality is all of our stories start out with weeping. But they wind up with rejoicing. Every one of us is born separated from God, right? Because of our sin. Well, what happens the moment we profess faith? We are redeemed. We are saved. And so there's rejoicing. Our stories are transformed. Now we're going to wind up worshiping. We're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. Maybe a lot of us, as we've been studying Ruth, see ourselves in this account. We look at all the, the way it played out. Elimelech's family started out broken financially. You remember there's a famine in the land. That's what led Elimelech to lead his family over to Moab, this place that God had told him not to go. It's a place where they worshiped false gods. Then over there, we see a whole bunch of broken marriages, and they're not broken by divorce. They're broken because people kept dying. There was all these funerals. Well, today we get to the conclusion of our study that brokenness is gone. What we see is this glorious picture of God's provision. And it comes about because God used this man named Boaz. And Boaz made a plan to join God in his plan. Boaz moved himself up in the pecking order to become the kinsman redeemer for Naomi's family. Really because he loved Ruth so much. And so I want to wind up this journey today by talking about the stories that each of our three main characters would get to tell. Because of the things they learned in this account. If we had a special guest speakers today, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and they were going to share their story, their testimony, we call it as Christ followers, about God's provision, about how they saw God at work, how they joined him, how they persevered through trials, how they waited on God's timing. Man, those would be amazing testimonies. Testimonies like that that have a bunch of really high highs and really low lows, we kind of get fired up about those, right? Those, those are good to hear. Even as people wade through adversity and twists and turns, we're kind of on the edge of our seats because we know where those stories end up. They're going to wind up pointing to God as the one who rescues us. 
I'm kind of blessed because I've been able to, to coach people before on how to share their testimony. Hey, if you get the chance to share your testimony, here's what you should focus on. And I always cheat, and I just steal it straight out of the Bible. In John chapter 9, <coughs> pardon me, in John chapter 9, there's that great picture of what all Christ followers' testimony looks like. Do you remember that story? The guy says, I was blind, but then I met Jesus, <laughs> and now I see. And those are the three parts of every Christ follower's testimony. We all have that story. And if we're going to tell that story, it points to God's greatness. Now, people who aren't Christ followers can tell their story, but it's not the same. <laughs> There's a big difference. If somebody who's not a Christ follower or not yet a Christ follower tells their story, we call that a biography, right? And I'm not saying it's a bad story. They can have a great story. They can tell about how they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and how they did all these amazing things. But it winds up sounding like they're bragging. They're just bragging on themselves. Whereas people who tell their testimony are bragging about God. Now, here's the thing about bragging, okay? Many of us are prone to do a little bit of it, right? I don't like to brag, but we like to brag. That's the way it goes. I almost never brag. You won't hear me bragging, right? I, I never brag about like going to really expensive places, but I did go to the gas station yesterday, twice. So. <laughs> too soon? <laughs> Probably too soon for that one. If we're honest, a lot of people like to brag. And you hear the story about the guy, he was bragging about how hot his wife was. It wasn't me, I'll tell you that, right? I brag about that a lot. But, but this guy was bragging about how hot his wife was. And, and he, he was such a braggart, he would carry around a picture of her. And he'd brag about how attractive she was, and then he'd show people the picture. And one day he's bragging. He's like, my wife is so hot. And he shows this guy a picture. And, and the guy says, well, you should see my wife. And the guy says, oh, is your wife really attractive too? And he said, no, she's an optometrist. <laughs> I'll wait. It's fine. <laughs> Got to be careful bragging, right? <laughs> Unless we know who we're bragging about. Biographers brag about themselves. People who give their testimony brag about God. Why? Because we know we didn't save ourselves. <laughs> we know that we couldn't do that. God redeemed us. Jesus rescued us. And when that happens, God gets the glory. And that's what we see happen over and over here in the book of Ruth. God, who is conspicuously absent by name in this text, is always at work behind the scenes. He's the one who's visible in the rearview mirror. He's the one who's sovereignly directing Naomi's steps. He's sovereignly directing Ruth's steps, Boaz's steps. Amen? We know that. So let's dive into the text today. We're going to start with some really good news. This is great news that we have been anxiously anticipating for six weeks now. Join me on verse 13 in the Sky Bible. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Isn't this what we've been waiting for for six weeks? Yes. We have a wedding to celebrate. And then it gets awkward. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. I can't get this out of my head, so I don't know if this is good to share or not. Do you remember the, the Pixar movie, The Incredibles? <laughs> I love that movie. With Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, and, and, and the superheroes have to kind of go in hiding because there's some goofy you know, media stuff going on. And, and so they get married, they have a family, and the supervillain syndrome discovers them, finds them, and he's so excited about you know, finding Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl. And when he finds them, they have a family. They have these three superhero babies or whatever. And he sees them and he goes, Mr. Incredible, you married Elastigirl and got busy <laughs> because there's all these kids. And that's what's playing in my head here in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth and Boaz finally get married and they got busy immediately in God's timing. They had a child, right? That's what's happening. You guys knew this. Verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer talking about Boaz. May his name be renowned in Israel. 
That's a nice nod for Boaz, but Boaz and Ruth have kind of taken center stage over the last couple weeks. Remember, Naomi is one of our main characters too. And Naomi has had a tough life. Here she gets one of the greatest blessings that life can give us. As I've heard, I have not experienced this blessing myself yet, but, but I've heard it's an enormous blessing to have a grandchild, right? I've got a picture in my head of how this works. You get the grandchild for the day, and you take him to the rodeo, or you take him to the fair, or you take him to the movies, you take him to the ball game, you load him up on candy, and you send him home. <laughs> what a blessing! <laughs> all the sugar, all the candy, none of the headache, none of the bouncing off the walls. All right, have a good night. Yeah. That sounds like a blessing to me, but, but that's what happens to Naomi, right? She's blessed by this grandbaby. Verse 15. This grandbaby is going to be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you. Now, here's proof, although we've seen it in Ruth's actions over and over again. Here the text comes right out and tells us Ruth loves her mother-in-law. I hope that's the case for all of you who are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving dinner with your in-laws very soon. I hope you love them. She says, Ruth loves Naomi. The text says she's more to you than seven sons. That's how valuable Ruth is to Naomi. Now, that's a neat picture if you think about it because seven in the Bible is often seen as the number of perfection. I'd say it's more honestly the number of completion. You see this right at the start in Genesis. God creates all the stuff. It takes him six days. What does he do on the seventh day? He takes a nap because he's God, right? He didn't even need the nap. But it's this picture of it's all done. It's complete. It's full. And so this is symbolic in here. Naomi doesn't have seven sons, right? She had two sons, two Klingon boys that she still mourns, but, but she didn't have seven. This is just a picture of blessing. And, and this text says, Ruth is such a blessing to you, it's better than this symbolic picture of completeness. That's how good she is to you. I love this picture. So Ruth has given birth to this grand blessing you have. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. How cool. Verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, we know the son was born to Ruth. Naomi gets the extra blessing. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Now, let's be honest. Naomi's life had not been easy for a while. <laughs> She'd had a tough go of it for like 10 years, right? But now she's got a grandbaby. Now things are looking up, Right? And this grandbaby, Obed, he's going to be part of Naomi's testimony. He's going to be part of every one of our main characters' testimony. So to conclude this study, that's what I want to look at today, is the testimony of these three main characters. If you grabbed an outline on your way in, we've kind of got some notes that will help you. Where does Naomi's testimony begin? We met her back in chapter 1, and where was she? She was hurting, man. She was crushed. She was broken. She'd been taken out of her community there in Bethlehem. She goes to Moab. She loses her husband. She loses her two sons. It's a 10-year period of grief. Even before Malon and Kilion die, they don't produce any grand blessings with Ruth and Orpah. So what happens to Naomi? She kind of starts to wander down that bad path, right? She's still praying. She's still a believer in the one true God. She still will occasionally offer some good counsel. She also mixes in some bad counsel. At one point in time, she becomes an anti-evangelist. Do you remember that? She literally tells her two daughter-in-laws, nah, it'd be better for you to go worship false gods than to come with me. That's, that's bad advice, right? But she's hurting. She's hurting so much that she decides to change her name. Remember that? Naomi means sweet and pleasant. With all these trials she's going through, she goes, nope, nope, no longer. Can't call myself that anymore. And so she changes her name to, to Mara, to bitter. She becomes this bitter old woman. Why? Because she's hurting so much. 
That's her origin story in this book. And now we see her here in chapter four and she's radiant. This smile's beaming off her face. She's bouncing little baby Obed on her knee. What happened? God healed her. She was redeemed. God made the way for her to be rescued. God healed her. So she rips off her bitter old woman name tag and she's going back to being sweet and pleasant because God took her on a journey. She experienced a whole lot on that path from hurting to healed to redeemed. For any of us here today, is that our testimony? Does that sound like our story? Our three parts of our story with God? I bet there's more than a few of us. That's Naomi's testimony. What about her daughter-in-law? What does Ruth's testimony look like? Well, your bulletin says she goes from being devastated to displaying determination to being redeemed. She starts out in a tough spot. We learn about the death of her husband, and she's just leveled by that, right? And then she winds up in this really bleak, this really weighty situation. But instead of just camping out and saying, well, I'm done. God's done with me. What does she do? Man, she shows great determination. When Naomi tells Ruth, no, you just stay back in Moab. Don't, don't come with me to Bethlehem. She gives one of the greatest speeches in the Bible. Do you remember that? She says, no, where you go, I'm going to go. Your people will be my people. Let me tell you right now, that was not going to be easy. The Hebrews and the Moabites, that was oil and water. She was going to go and be despised. People were going to talk about her worshiping a false god, but she was determined. And praise the Lord, she places her faith in God. Remember that? She tells Naomi, your God will be my God. And she arrives in Bethlehem and she hits the ground running. She is resilient. She goes out and works hard to glean. She goes out and she puts herself in the path of God's blessing. She's this super determined woman. She's going to be a woman of godly character. And that's so important because she winds up in, in kind of a compromising position. Do you remember there on the threshing floor? But she demonstrates her character. Proves she's a woman of excellence. All the while she's doing this, Boaz is so drawn to that. I think he's been waiting. He's been looking for a woman like this. And so he hatches a plan so he can marry her. Her testimony started out, she was devastated, but she was so determined. And then ultimately she's redeemed. That's Ruth's testimony. Obviously that plays into Boaz's testimony. What does our kinsman redeemer's story looks like? Well, he's the guy who goes from waiting to working, Right? He doesn't wait sitting on his hands just to see what God's going to do. He joins God. And because of that, he winds up worshiping. I love Boaz. I'm just so impressed with him as I study this. And so I ask this question every week. Can we follow that example? Am I following Boaz's example? What have we learned about him? He's, he's probably an older guy. I don't think he's as old as Naomi. But he's a little older. He's affluent. He's been a successful guy. He's a single guy. He's a good man. He's a strong man. He's a generous man. Every week, I'm like, why hasn't this guy found a wife yet? <laughs> no eHarmony back in the day? The Bachelor wasn't on TV yet, so he couldn't do it? Well, we, we don't know all the facts, but at least in my head, I'm assuming he must have had opportunities, right, to pursue a young lady, to get married, and he didn't do it. Why? It seems to me like he's waiting for the right person. I've shared over the last couple of weeks a story that I was engaged to be married before I got married. I ended up breaking it off. And, and when I was about 23, I'd broken up this uh, engagement. And, and I remember going to my grandparents who, who were hugely influential in my life, my grandfather more than anybody in my life. But I was sitting there having this pity party about not being married or whatever. And, and I asked my grandmother, I was like, how do you know? How do you know when you're supposed to get married? 
And my grandma, God love her, I, I do remember her pointing to God. She's like, well, you got to pray. You got to join God. He's going to lead you in this way. But then she said this, and I'll never forget this. She said, getting married is not about when you find somebody and you go, well, I think I can live with that person. It's when you find somebody and you go, I can't live without that person. <laughs> That was grandma's advice, and I thought it was good advice, right? And I think that's what happened to Boaz. My grandma was talking to him, right? And, and, and he had been waiting for a girl he couldn't live without. And here comes Ruth, this young Moabite girl. And maybe he'd been praying for some time to find a wife. And God's answer to Boaz was one of the four answers we said you can get to prayer last week. No, go, grow, or what was that last one? Slow. Slow, Boaz, wait on me. And in my perfect timing, I'll, I'll give you a wife. Now, Boaz may not have liked that answer. I don't think I liked that answer when I waited until I was 27 before I got married. But, but Boaz didn't just sit on his hands and wait. Right? He was a worker. And so his testimony is this phenomenal model for us. He goes from waiting to working to worshiping God for the blessings in his life. That's a testimony. I hope we can learn a lot from that one. Am I joining God where he's at work? And this is big for me, and I thought about this this week, because I'm a guy who's tried to take shortcuts in my life before, right? Like, I see the path God has for me, and I'm like, that's going to take years. Is there a shorter path? <laughs> that looks like a two-year path. Is there a two-day path that I could get on God and wind up in the same place? Anybody else do that? Here's the problem with that, I think. So often, the final destination is not the most important thing. That's not really what God is leading us to. He wants us to wander along the path so we can pick up all those lessons along the way. We're supposed to gain this experiential knowledge from the things that God allows in our lives. Why? So we can be better used by him day in and day out, wherever he's leading. I, I used to look back at my life and I, I just actively wonder, God, why? Why did you put me in this family? Why did my family put the fun and dysfunctional? Why, why do I have so much baggage? Why do I struggle with so many addiction issues? My parents were divorced when I was young and then literally had a race to see who could be divorced the most times. I had a mother who said she loved me but never acted like it. I had a father who never once told me he loved me but did act like it. Finally restored relationship with my mom when, when she was older and she died of cancer in six months. I, I didn't understand it. I had all these questions. And one day God opened his word and he revealed this verse to me. This is out of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. Why? So our life will be easy? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The finish line is not always the goal. We have posters out there in the Connection Center, this, this model that we use, this four-chair model, to try and join God where he's working. And never does anybody jump from chair number one, the lost chair, to chair number four, the disciple-maker chair. That's not the way it works. You're supposed to move chair by chair. You move from being lost to being a believer because there's a lot of things we're supposed to learn as a believer. As a follower of Christ, we learn about things like perseverance. We learn about things like how God is at work in trials. We learn how to, to follow him through hard times. We learn about hope and trust. And from that believer chair, from chair two, we're supposed to jump into that third chair, the worker chair, because dear goodness, there's so many things to learn. 
about the spiritual gifts God has given us, about how we're supposed to use those for his glory. We learn things by becoming a worker that we take to chair number four. And then once we're in chair number four, now we can circle back to any one of these chairs and help people move along. We can make disciples who make disciples. And you know what that's really called? It's called ministry. That's what we all get to do. Ministry to our family, ministry to our friends, ministry to bring comfort to those that God puts in our path who are in pain. And we can be used by God. Why? Because he allowed us both into and out of all these trials. There's a purpose for those things. Do we think Boaz enjoyed 10 years of famine? No. But did those 10 years of famine give Boaz lots of opportunities to learn to grow and trust? Of course they did. Boaz is such a neat character. He's one of the very, very few in the totality of Scripture that we don't see anything bad about, right? We don't see any flaws. He had them. I guarantee it. They just didn't make the book, right? You don't think there were days Boaz woke up and went, wow, still a famine. Thanks, God. This is great, you don't think Boaz got set up on another blind date and he's out there and the girl says supposedly instead of supposedly and he's like, I'm out, I'm done. I just can't do this. Right? There were days that that happened for Boaz. Something like that certainly happened in his testimony. And yet what did he do? He kept waiting on God's perfect plan, his perfect will. And he kept working. He kept joining God so that he would wind up worshiping. Worship is our response to what God is doing, to what he has done. And Boaz loves where he winds up in the story. But I bet he didn't like every single step along the way. Nobody does. Church, I'm so blessed. I I get to be used by God. And it's amazing. I do a lot of counseling. It's amazing the number of times God puts someone in my path whose parents were divorced young. He puts someone in my path who struggles with addiction issues. He put someone in my path whose parents died young, and I can be used by God to comfort those people. How? Because God comforted me along the way, long before I even knew him. At that moment, I'm glad that I took that long and winding path. I'm so glad I didn't try and take the shortcuts, because God uses that. I'm glad I learned those lessons I was supposed to learn, because it led me to worship him. Boaz has that testimony for sure. He's been waiting on God's timing for a wife. He's had to endure these difficult seasons in his business. But while he's waiting, he's working. He winds up worshiping. That's a testimony. And, And there's a neat confirmation to me of this journey for Boaz in the name that was actually given to his son. Remember, throughout the story, names mean a, a bunch. They're pregnant with meaning here. Do you know what the name Obed means? Worshiper of God. Literally, servant of God or worshiper of God. And God was involved in this story in a really unusual way. I don't know if you caught it because we breezed right past it. Did you see who named Obed? It wasn't his mom and dad. It was a bunch of Naomi's neighbor friends, right? That's what happened in verse 17. I wonder how that would have turned out if I would have had a bunch of my grandma's friends name my firstborn child. Thinking there's a chance it wouldn't be Gavin. I'll just tell you right now. My grandmother's name, I'm, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. My grandmother's name is Golda. She's a strong German family. And she had sisters named Eula and Oma. And she had two cousins named Uta and Vera. They were all linebargers. Golda, linebarger. You don't get more German than that. It's sauerkraut at every meal. If I, if I had let my grandma and her friends name my firstborn child, he'd be Gunter today, I'm sure. Aberhart Green is who you'd have. But, so what, what God does here, and this seems pretty prophetic to me, these ladies get to name this baby boy Obed. 
They name him worshiper of God. And I believe it's a, a nod to his daddy's testimony. Because Boaz went from waiting on God's perfect timing to working alongside God to worshiping God. Boaz is blessed, period. And, and yes, Ruth was a huge part of that blessing. So was Obed. And this is something God really hammered on me this week. Obed's a big part of Naomi's testimony, Ruth's testimony, Boaz's testimony, because children are designed to be a blessing. That, that, and listen, I get it, and I've got a bunch of them. They can also be a burden, but God's desire is for us to be blessed. Them being a burden is part of that not taking shortcuts in our life deal, right? God desires for them to be in the families. God places children in families, whether biologically or through adoption. He does that to bless people. Sometimes children are a pain. Sometimes they're prodigal. But as parents, we're not supposed to shame them. We're not supposed to curse them. We're not supposed to exasperate them. We're not supposed to hurt them. Why? Because we're supposed to build them up. We're supposed to pour into them because they're a blessing from God to us. Some of you might have toddlers at home or teenagers and you're like, I'll take it on faith, Pastor James. I don't think it's true. It is true. <laughs> They're a blessing, right? And with that blessing, we're supposed to create a legacy. Having children allows parents and grandparents to not only have these amazing roles we get as providers and caregivers, but that puts us in ministry. Let me ask this question. I don't often have you raise your hands, but I will on this one. How many of you sitting in this room are parents or grandparents? Raise your hand. Surprise anybody? Look at all those ministers. We are in ministry. If you raised your hands on this one, I hope we see it. God has placed us in that, in that spot, in that path. Because ministry has to start in the home. Ministry has to start with our children and our grandchildren. That's got to be the priority. Even for vocational ministers, for me, for Brenton, for Wes and, and Andrew and, and Forrest, here's the deal. If we make you our number one ministry, if I try to make Orchards Community Church my number one ministry, I'm doing it wrong. Because God has given me a number one ministry. It's my family. And praise the Lord, he's given me a wife who loves me enough to call me out on it because I, I messed this up. I left a ministry. <laughs> I was doing Young Life ministry and I had to leave it because I didn't do this right. I was elevating that ministry above my family and my wife called me out on it. And I love her for that. There's so much application for us in this 3,000-year-old love story. That was just free of charge. Children are a blessing and a legacy. All right, back to the text or we'll never get done. Look, look with me at the last few verses. And I've got to give you a warning before we look at this, okay? This, there's more good news in here, but it's about legacies. But what we're going to see here is a genealogy. And sometimes, be honest, don't raise your hand on this one. Sometimes we're reading the Bible and we get to a genealogy and we just skip over that part, right? We're reading along and we're like, why'd God put the Hebrew phone book up in here? And we flip the page. We're like, this can't be anything for me. But, but I, I want us to think about genealogies differently today, okay? Don't think of it as a big long list of names. Think of it as a family tree. You ever seen that picture of your family tree and how all the branches go out and you look, oh, it's Uncle Bob. And we get really excited about that. Why? Because we know those people. We can see how we're connected. Well, if we're here today as Christ followers, this is our family tree, okay? We've been grafted into this one. We get adopted by someone who's going to show up a little later in this genealogy, somebody pretty important. We'll talk about it more. This is good stuff. Ruth 4, starting in verse 18. 
Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. There's a good strong name. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered what I hope is Salmon and not Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Oh wait, there's a name that I know. Boaz, we've been studying that. Boaz is a good guy, right? Boaz fathered Obed. We just learned about Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Hold on a second. Is that King David? That's another name I know. This is an important family tree. And there's a huge word that God uses over and over and over here, and there's no way you missed it. It's fathered. How important is that word? Dads, granddads here today, this is so huge. God wants us to father. What's involved in that? That's providing, both physically and spiritually. That's a huge task. That's a God-sized task. We're supposed to take that one seriously. One of the most pressing issues we face in America today has to do with crime and violence. And overwhelmingly, if you read the studies, the statistics point to one huge determinant. You know what it is? Fatherless generations is especially apparent in the African-American community. Now, I don't have the ability to speak into this as a black person, obviously, but but I'll, I'll tell you this. I grew up in a predominantly black community. I went to a grade school where I was one of three white people in my class, and I literally saw this for the years that I lived there. I would see black pastors. I would see black community leaders wade into this neighborhood where I lived and bemoan, where are the fathers? All my friends... All my good friends in elementary school, I would see their moms, their grandmas, their aunties, and they were clawing to hold these families together with no men. It's a huge, huge issue. No help from fathers. This is crushing. God uses this word very intentionally here. Men, we are to father, not just physically. Almost any guy can do that. We're supposed to raise our kids. We're supposed to father our children, pour our lives into them. Why? So they can do the same thing. So they'll be prepared to father the next generation. One of the clear ways that God has spoken to me through this study, through the course of my life as a father, is to realize in this life, the greatest impact I might ever make, and listen, I am, I'm blessed, I'm ridiculously blessed, because I have people almost every week come up and tell me, God, God really uses me, you in my life. You point me to God. That's a huge blessing, but all the glory goes to God. But in my life, I am so aware. The greatest impact I might ever have might be something one of my kids does. Might be something one of my grandkids does, my yet unborn grandkids. They'll they'll do for God's glory. I know that's true. Boaz is a great guy. We've gone on and on about it. Ruth is a godly woman. Do you think there's any way they can imagine? They're they're so excited about this little baby and they're bouncing him on their knee, this fun little baby. Ooh, and all over this baby. Do you think they, for a second, think, wow, his grandson's going to be the king of Israel. They don't know that. I I bet Obed's grandson is going to be recorded in the scriptures being a man after God's own heart. No. That's an impact that they can't see yet. I mentioned earlier how important my grandfather was to my life. I I quote him more than anybody not in the Bible. I guarantee that. Because he's had an impact on me. And because I quote him still to this day, he's had an impact on my kids. And they never even met him. He was gone long before they were around. Church, some of the most important contributions from us in this fallen world may happen long after we're gone. Do we get that? 
Here's the application. Are we doing ministry with our blessings? Do we see our kids and grandkids as a ministry, as a legacy? Now, I want to demonstrate this, and I stole this illustration from a guy that was a professor of mine at DTS, so I'm going to have a couple of volunteers come up and help me with this. But I took an Old Testament history class. If you guys see one of them, hopefully another one comes up. There he is. <laughs> uh, I took an Old Testament history class with a guy named Gene Pond. And, and everybody said, oh, don't take Dr. Pond for history. He's so boring. And, and this guy was amazing. He loved God's word so much that he literally made the Old Testament come alive for me. And so he gave me this illustration, and, I, and I've stolen it and used it ever since then. But what Dr. Pond did one day was he was in class, and he pulled out a chain. And he said, here's how I want you to think about family history. He says, it's just a chain. But what's the problem with a chain? We all know this. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And so Elimelech was a weak link, right? Elimelech is the guy who led his family away from God's blessing. I've got to make sure I get this in the right spot. Am I there? Yeah. So Elimelech came and what? He was a weak link. What happened by the very, very next generation? Malon and Kilion went out. Woo. And now that chain is gone, <laughs> and there's no more blessing. Thanks so much, fellas. I appreciate that. Th that's the, the picture of what we do with the weak link. Elimelech made a bad decision. He didn't father his children well. He didn't lead them well. And by the next generation, what happened? They're gone. Now, the beauty of that is then thinking about Boaz and Ruth and the genealogy we see here and another genealogy that I want to point to. It's a chain that doesn't have broken links. Nobody's leading people away from God's presence. Boaz is an important part. Ruth is an important part. Ruth is really a very strong link in that family tree of Boaz and Obed. If you think about it, she was very likely the very first God-fearing person in her family. Her folks were Moabites. They worshiped the false god Chemosh. That was the lowercase g god of choice of the Moabites and the Ammonites. But Ruth professes faith in God. She becomes the first link in that chain on her family's side. And then Boaz is there, and he's a strong link. And so now we have this progression, this legacy that follows link after link after link. It goes from Obed to Jesse to David. And we know the chain doesn't end there, right? When we're studying this, we're still early on. But about a 1,000 years later, this chain leads where? It leads to Jesus. You guys ever going to look at chain the same way again, or are you going to look at it the way I do, thanks to Dr. Gene Pond? Genealogies aren't pages out of the Hebrew phone book. They're vivid pictures of family trees. Ruth's tree, Boaz's tree, Obed's tree. Their chain leads to Jesus. Jesus is, and we've mentioned this many times before, the great redeemer of everyone, everywhere who professes faith. Well, we need a redeemer. We can't save ourselves. We're not going to earn a spot in heaven through our good works. It just won't happen. We need somebody to come and rescue us. And because of Naomi's testimony, which leads to Ruth's testimony, which is part of Boaz's testimony, which leads to Obed's testimony, which leads to Jesse's testimony, which leads to David's testimony, which leads to Joseph's testimony, we'll study here in a few weeks at Christmas, we finally get to Jesus. And if we're here today as Christ followers, it leads to you and me. That's our family tree because Jesus is our great redeemer. Because God adopted us into his family. At that time, we're grafted into the family tree. The moment we profess faith. The moment we believe in the work that Jesus did on the cross to save us from sin, to save us to himself. 
Now, we don't have time for this today, but I don't often do this. I'm going to do it this week. I'm going to give you some homework, okay? Well, I'll talk about this in the Midpoint podcast this week if you're listening. On your own, read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Have you ever read it? It's one of the Gospels. Or or did you open it and go, oh, it starts with a bunch of names and you flip to chapter 2? Don't tell on yourself. Read the genealogy in chapter 1. I'll give you this hint. You're going to recognize some names from our study. They're in there. That genealogy in Matthew 1 is where this 3,000-year-old love story leads. We can't miss a crucial bit of good news in there, okay? We don't have to look any further than our happy couple. Did Boaz need a redeemer? He was a good guy, right? He was a great guy. He was a strong man. He was generous. He was rich. He had great character. Could any of those things save him? No. He needed a redeemer. What about Ruth? Now, admittedly, look at Ruth. She started out as a weak link, right? She started out as this despised Moabite girl. But listen, that didn't disqualify her. Ruth's a great example. I'm a great example. We can't be so far away from God that we can't be redeemed. You need some more examples? Check out some of those names mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. There's some good stories of people whose lives on this planet were kind of sketchy. And yet God used them mightily. And those people all wind up as links on the chain of Jesus Christ. Here we are today talking about family trees. Are we thinking about ours? Are we thinking about our testimony that we can use to point people to God? Are we going out and telling people stories of what our lives look like before we met Jesus and that moment when we met Jesus and now what our lives look like now because of that? Because we professed faith? I hope as we tell the story, we focus a lot on what our lives look like now. Now that we're able to worship, now that we're able to respond to God for all that he is, for all that he's done. Ruth might have started here and Boaz might have started here, but ain't nobody starting up here. None of us are redeemed without Jesus. None of us start out saved. But praise the Lord, the moment we begin our relationship with God by professing faith, God will rescue us. Jesus will redeem us. He'll save us. Because as we've already learned through studying through Ruth, God pursues us. He transforms us. Why? Because he loves us. And that's the greatest love story ever told. Amen? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Thanks for studying. Let's pray. Daddy, this has been a, a phenomenal study for me, and I pray so much for the folks here in this body, folks who've been tuning in online, God, that we we see all the application in this. And today we focus on our family tree. We focus on that fact it doesn't matter if we start out like I did, if we start out like Ruth did, we start out far, far from the Lord. Maybe we start out like Boaz, we start out as pretty good people who still need a redeemer. God, wherever we are in that journey, help us to not try and take shortcuts. Help us to be like Boaz, to wait and to join you in work so that we can wind up worshiping all that you are, all that you've done. God, if you'd give us opportunities, this would be such a a special prayer. If you'd give us opportunities over the next week, over the next months leading into the holiday season, God, to be able to point to you by sharing our story, by bragging about you, not about ourselves, but bragging about how you rescued us, you redeemed us, you saved us. God, maybe you'd use us to help point you, point people to you at this this time. God, that'd be so wonderful. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.